defines capital? I mean, people commonly make the mistake of saying it's money or it's labor power or it's commodity markets or even production, specifically in chapters four, five, and six of volume two. Um, what is highlighted is the social relation between capital and labor that permits surplus value. I wanted to know if you could speak to this a little more. What he suggests is that you know, before capital became capitalism, um, there were already markets for labor power. Labor services were being exchanged for money all over the place. Commodities were being traded all over the place. Money was floating around. So all of those elements preceded the capital accumulation. Uh, what happened with the capitalist revolution, if you want to call it that, is those elements were reconfigured and brought within production around this notion of a class relation where capital actually appropriates the product of the laborer in production and that product is creating surplus value. So this is the heart of what the capitalist definition is about, is production of surplus value. You then get into what I think uh, Engels misses about volume two, which is a bit of the red meat of, uh, you know, what's the politics of all of this about? And I think the politics of it is that an anti-capitalist politics has to be about challenging that class relation in production and in the end eliminating that class relation in production, reorganizing production along completely different social lines. Having said that, however, Marx, Marx's method is of course to say that what goes on in production cannot be understood independently of how the money system has been reorganized, the credit system has been reorganized, how commodity markets have been reorganized, labor markets have been reorganized. So you just can't imagine that you can walk into a factory and say, okay, everybody, we're now going to change this, and therefore we're out of capitalism. You can't imagine doing that. And we see in the history of workers' control, there been many attempts to sort of get the associated laborers in charge of production, and they often fail because the surrounding circumstances put pressure on to actually get back into that class relation in production. But the heart of it is, I think, always about this class relation in production. So the first uh, three chapters, as you recall, look at the circulation process of capital through these three different windows of money, production, and commodity. And in chapter four, Marx typically puts it all back together. Um, the language is a little uh, convoluted, but I think you get the point uh, that these different circuits are intertwined with each other, curling around each other, constantly in motion in relationship to each other. Uh, he makes some rather obvious points that uh, a capitalist doesn't typically have all the money, either in the money circuit or the commodity circuit. They typically have part of, part of their capital in each one of them. And the language which uh, Marx prefers here is a language of, well, continuity, uh, succession, uh, coexistence, uh, and uh, fluidity. So and capital searching for all of that to flow very smoothly. 
uh, and is paralleled by another language which is about the inevitability of interruptions. And so, for example, he says uh, on uh, page 182, in the middle there, the circuit of capital is a constant process of interruption. One stage is left behind, the next stage embarked upon. One form is cast aside and the capital exists in another. Each of these stages not only conditions the other, but at the same time excludes it. This language of continuity, fluidity, coexistence, succession, is as it were punctuated by this other language of interruption, with the potentiality, of course, of that interruption becoming, quote, a disruption. Um, so, as he says on top of 183, the real circuit of industrial capital, in its continuity, is therefore not only a unified process of circulation and production, but also a unity of all its three circuits. But the possibility of interruption-disruption is then immediately posed at the bottom of the page, where he says, if C prime to M prime, that is, the commodity that sustains its surplus value, that, ha that is impregnated with surplus value, uh, is realized as money plus surplus value, he says, if that comes to a halt, in the case of one portion, for example, if the commodity is unsaleable, then the circuit of this part is interrupted, and its replacement by its means of production is not accomplished. The successive parts that emerge from the production process as C prime find their change of function barred by their predecessors. If this continues for some time, production is restricted and the whole process brought to a standstill. Every delay in the succession brings the coexistence into disarray. Every delay in one stage causes a greater or lesser delay in the entire circuit not only that of the portion of the capital that is delayed, but also that of the entire individual capital. So a malfunctioning in any one circulation process generates malfunctions and everything else, so they're all contingent uh, on, on each other. Which then leads to something which I think is perhaps the most important thing about this particular chapter, which is an argument he broaches on page 185. This is, if you like, one of those oases in the deserts of uh, Marx's ruminations. But again, it's presented in such a flat way that it, it's easy to sort of cruise by it and not realize what its significance is. He says, capital as self-valorizing value does not just comprise class relations, a definite social character that depends on the existence of labor as wage labor. Now, this is, I think, a very important question, which I'm going to come back to in another form later on. But when he says it just that the capital self-valorizing value does not just comprise class relations, he seems to be suggesting that dilemmas can arise in the circulation process outside of the sorts of class struggle that goes on between capital and labor and the social relation between capital and labor. So maybe there's something else going on. And he clarifies this, it is a movement, a circulatory process through different stages which itself in turn includes 
three different forms of the circulatory process. Hence it can only be grasped as a movement and not as a static thing. Now the idea here is, if we grasp it, it has to be as a movement, and therefore if the movement breaks down for any reason, then we can get the kind of crisis that he's talked about a little earlier. He then goes on to say this, those who consider the autonomization of value as a mere abstraction, forget that the movement of industrial capital is this abstraction in action. Now, what he's saying here is, I think, going back to the value theory, and saying the value theory is an abstraction, but it's a real abstraction. And that means that this abstraction has consequences. And it has consequences in the following way. It says, here value passes through different forms, different movements in which it is both preserved and, and increases, is valorized. Since we are firstly dealing here simply with the forms of movement, we have not considered the revolutions that the capital value may suffer in its circulatory process, that is, this business of him leaving aside technological change, and he's going to abandon that assumption in a minute. It is clear, however, that despite all revolutions in value, capitalist production can exist and continue to exist only so long as the capital value is valorized i.e. describes its circuit as value that has become independent, and therefore so long as the revolutions in value are somehow or other mastered and balanced out. The movements of capital appear as actions of the individual industrial capitalist, and he then talks about that for a moment, but then says, if the social capital value suffers a revolution in value, it can come about that his individual capital succumbs to this and is destroyed because it cannot meet the conditions of this movement of value. The more acute and frequent these revolutions in value become, the more the movement of the independent value, acting with the force of an elemental natural process, that is a, a law of motion. When Marx talks about a natural process, he means it's socially constructed, but it acts on its own. It's an independent force. So, Acting with the force of an elemental natural process prevails over the foresight and calculation of the individual capitalist. The more the course of normal production is subject to abnormal speculation, and the greater becomes the danger to the existence of the individual capitals. These periodic revolutions in value thus confirm what they ostensibly refute, the independence which value acquires as capital, and which is maintained and intensified through its movement. The best way to think about this is this is actually a theory of deindustrialization. It's a theory of what happened in the 1980s and 1990s when, for example, uh, in the city of Baltimore where I was there living, you know, the plant closures were going on left, right, and center. Why were they going on? Well, people would kind of say, oh, it was globalization or, so or something like that. What Marx is saying is that value is constituted through individual behaviours, so that it becomes an aggregate force and it acts, as I mentioned in the very first lecture, 
in the realm of generality, like a force of nature. It is a law of motion of capital. It's an independent law of motion, and it's independent of the individual desires, needs, actions of the individual capitalist. So Marx is taking, if you like, an anti-humanist position here. That is, it doesn't matter what individual capitalists do, they have to submit to the law of value. Which is very much, of course, a, a thesis which is derived from Adam Smith, who says it doesn't matter what individual capitalists are about, the hidden hand of the market will produce a result of some sort, and some of them will go bankrupt and some of them won't. But what Marx is doing here is substituting for this notion of a hidden hand of the market, this notion of value. Value, if you go back to the beginning of Volume 1, is immaterial but objective. It's a social relation. And I think what, what's happening here in these passages is, is, is that Marx is talking about a situation where individual capitalists, operating in their own self-interest, produce a collective law of motion that can come back and destroy them. That's what he's really saying here. And it's a very interesting idea. And then, of course, capitalists get mad as hell at capitalism. They kind of say, look, I was a good capitalist, I, 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 you know, I played the game and all this kind of thing, and, and, and somehow or other I lost my business. I went bankrupt. And, you know, so, so, so Marx has to, I think, being very kind of, in this passage, I think, is opening up the possibility to think about the relationship between the aggregate social capital and the laws of motion that begin to evolve within the aggregate social capital. And these laws of motion, of course, are forged out of multiple individual behaviours all over the place. So it's not just that there was offshoring or something like that that led all these industries to close down. It was part of the law of motion of capital. And the interesting thing is, it did it in all kinds of places during those years. In the 1980s, the formation of what became known as the Rust Belt. But the same was true in cities like Manchester, Sheffield. Sheffield lo lost 60,000 jobs in the steel industry in about four years in the 1980s. Complete devastation. The same, of course, as was happening, you know, in, in many cities and, you know, you know the story of Detroit and all the rest of it. But it wasn't only happening in places like that, it was also happening in Mumbai. The textile industry of Mumbai also went down the chute in the 1980s. And again, it was the laws of motion. So what Marx is proposing here is to start to think about the laws of motion of capital as having the capacity to do this kind of thing. Now, what this produces, of course, is not a global crisis in the sense that everybody is going bankrupt. What it does is it produces specific crises among specific individual capitalists who are often collected together in a region, and it can be a regional crisis or it can be a national crisis. So, you know, when you start to, to, to work with this idea, 
you're asking yourself the two questions. One is, how is the law of value being constituted and perpetually revolutionized? Who's doing the revolutionizing? Well, individual capitalists and corporations and so on are doing the revolutionizing by introducing new technologies, going to new places where the labor costs are cheaper or whatever. They're doing all those kinds of things. So General Motors goes to China, but then General Motors finds that it cannot maintain itself very easily in Detroit. So in part, what it does in China is reflected by the collapse of its operations in Detroit. So this argument that Marx has going here is, I think, a, a very simple kind of way to give us a theory of deindustrialization of individual capitals, as they have to submit to the law of motion of value on the world stage. And when he talks about the autonomization of the law of value and its independent operation, become an independent force to which all capital has to submit. You know, some people will find that notion kind of a little odd, but the, the odd thing is that people will accept some abstract force called globalization as the problem. So if you said, oh, we're all closed down in Baltimore because of globalization, or Detroit's in pro, well, this is just as abstract as anything here, except you'd have no idea what it is that's producing globalization. Whereas Marx is very explicit about what is producing value. And he's so he's very explicit about it. So I think this is a very, very useful passage to uh, ref reflect upon. And it, again, it's, it's, uh, it, it's of course connected to another theme that Marx has, which is how do individual capitalists sometimes dig their own graves? <laughs> And the system is always in danger of doing that. So when it's more flamboyant passages in Volume One, he talks about you know uh, capital destroying it, it, itself. But here you get a more explicit notion, and you can see how that might happen uh, when you start to look collectively at the laws of motion. In again, the relationship here is between individual capitals and the aggregate social capital. So I think this is an interesting uh, passage here. Um, which also then adds to something, because one of the things that he's introduced into that passage is the idea that there are revolutions in value going on, which means that technological change is going on. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, like I say, in Volume 2 he excludes that. But he comes back to this idea on 187, he says, the process takes place quite normally, only if value relations remain constant. In other words, the smoothness and continuity and the fluidity, etc., can only be maintained in a situation where there is no technological change. As soon as you introduce technological change and revolutions in value, because socially necessary labour time is being revolutionized, as soon as you introduce that, then you introduce instability into the whole circulation process. Uh, for instance, a new technology comes in, the need for 
labor power changes, the need for material inputs changes, everything changes. So you see immediately that technological change is going to operate as a disruptive force on the smooth functioning of this system. So he says, only if the value relations remain constant. In practice, he says, it runs its course as long as disturbances in the re repetition of the circuit balance each other out. The greater the disturbances, the greater the money capital that the industrial capitalist must possess in order to ride out the period of readjustment. And since the scale of each individual production process grows with the progress of capitalist production, and with it minimum size of the capital to be advanced, this circumstance is added to the, the other circumstances which increasingly turn the function of industrial capitalists into a monopoly of large-scale money capitalists, either individual or associated. And again, he's breaching some of his own rules he set up. He said, I'm not going to talk about the persona in this, I'm not going to talk about individual capitalists, versus money capitalists, but here he's breaking and kind of saying, look, one of the things that happens in the midst of uncertainty, where you don't know which way the revolutions are going to go, is you need a reserve of money power, so that you can adapt. And that reserve of money power is terribly important, so, you know, uh, because if there is some fluctuation in the market, or there's some fluctuation in new technologies, or something of that kind, then you're in a better, better position to handle that if you're actually dealing, uh, if you actually have large reserves of money. So he's kind of suggesting that the balance between what an industrial capitalist might do and a money capitalist might do uh, shifts towards uh, being a money capitalist in times of rapid technological, uh, technological change. I think that's sort of an important kind of idea. He then breaks out of some of his other um, general presuppositions in, in, in capital, which is that he then introduces on 189 uh, onwards the way in which commodity, commodities can come into a capitalist system from outside. So, as he says towards the bottom of 189, Within its circulation process, in which industrial capital functions either as money or as commodity, the circuit of industrial capital, whether in the form of money capital or commodity capital, cuts across the commodity circulation of the most varied modes of social production. Based, um, whether the commodities are the product of production based on slavery, the product of peasants, of a community, of state production, or of half-savage hunting peoples as commodities and money, they confront the money and commodities in which industrial capital presents itself. In, in other words, there is a point where capital integrates with non-capitalistic modes of production, and forms of production. And it does so mainly through the commodity. That is, there is an object there which is brought in and then it becomes, as soon as it enters into this capitalist sphere, a commodity. And at that point, once it's inside of the, the process, Marx kind of comments the, right at the bottom, the character of the production process from which they derive is immaterial. They function on the market as commodities. And as commodities they enter both the circuit of industrial capital and the circulation of the surplus value borne by it. 
Thus, the circulation process of industrial capital is characterized by the many-sided character of its origins and the existence of the market as a world market. Now, of course, the formation of the world market is again one of the themes you'll find very well developed in the Communist Manifesto, for example. And the formation of the world market is frequently evoked by Marx in various points. It's made a great deal of in, in the Grundrisse, for, for example. But that integration with the world market and other modes of production poses, I think, some problems which Marx doesn't really uh, pick up on, but you can infer it if you like. About the middle of 190 he says, Yet it remains the case that their replacement, as a replacement of those commodities coming from outside, requires their reproduction. And to this extent the capitalist mode of production is conditioned by modes of production lying outside its own stage of development. Now, there are various forms of response to this situation. Its tendency, however, is to transform all possible production into commodity production. That is, it's going to colonize those spaces which are non-capitalistic and transform them into capitalistic forms of commodity production. Uh, secondly, he says, whatever the origin of the commodities that go into the circulation process, uh, they confront capital straight away in its form of commodity capital, they themselves having the form of commodity dealing or merchant's capital. And so the merchant has a very important role to play in pulling these commodities into the capitalist system. And this, he says, by its very nature embraces the commodities from all modes of production. Now, by and large, he's kept the figure of the merchant out before, and he's kept the finance out before, but they're all kind of beginning to enter in as persona into the story here. But the interesting thing about this reliance upon external sources is that if you put it up against the requirements that Marx is talking about of continuity, fluidity, succession, coexistence, then you have to be in a position where if you got a load of commodities from some non-capitalist source last year, you should maintain access to it this year. In other words, the continuity of access to those non-capitalistic forms of production becomes rather crucial. Now Marx doesn't make the point here, but obviously one of the ways in which you're going to guarantee that is through colonialism, imperialism, and all the rest of it. So Marx doesn't go there, here. He does go into that sort of stuff elsewhere, but here, he, for some reason or other, he decided not to, to say anything about it. But it's pretty clear when you start to analyze the relationship to non-capitalist forms of production and the relationship of a capitalist system to those other modes of production, then they just can't exist in a sort of, a, I don't know, kind of casual kind of uh, anecdotic kind of occasional exchange. I mean, they may exist in that form. But if they become systemic in any way, then you have to be assured. So, for example, uh, how does uh, the United States assure its supply of oil? Well, Saudi Arabia is hardly a sort of a model capitalist system. But what you do is you set up a relationship with the Saudis, which is, which is uh, you know, we'll support you with your crazy kind of system provided that that flow of oil keeps moving. 
in our direction. So, you know, this, the, whole, the whole kind of geopolitics of this becomes terribly important. Again, Marx is not dealing with that here, but by opening up this whole kind of question of what are the relationships between capital and capital circulation, and those forms of the social order which are based, for example, on slavery, and this was terribly important in the 19th century since, you know, uh, cotton from uh, the American South was, was fundamental to the Lancashire cotton industries. So you get a certain kind of relationship between, between uh, slavery in the American South and, and, the American and, and, and the Lancashire industrial interest. <coughs> so it wasn't clear, actually, given their interest, that they would actually support the North in the Civil War. So there's kind of a very interesting kind of set of questions here which it seems to me you can sort of uh, fantasize about. I mean, like I say, the, some of the text here is so dry that it's just to enjoy yourself, you have to fantasize about it some just to, just to, keep, just to keep yourself awake and, 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 and going well. But I mean, but there is this, this issue here, and it is sort of uh, posed and, and, and laid out in this kind of fashion. Um, Again, uh, there's something that crops up in here, which is uh, an occasional nod of kind of saying, well, the credit economy, but I'm not dealing with that here. This sort, of, sort of annoying phrases that he throws in. He then ends up, well, not ends up, but he, he then sort of makes some sort of comments uh, at, uh, about different forms of economy. Uh, on 195, he talks about natural economy, money economy, and credit economy. Uh, he says these are three characteristic economic forms of motion, of social production. Um, and a little bit further down, money economy and credit economy merely correspond to different stages of development of capitalist production. I, I, I'm, I'm not inclined to take some of these kinds of categorizations too. Uh, if you go into, try and go into them in any depth, they don't work, work too well, in my view. And so, um, again, he's sort of periodizing historically and kind of saying, well, uh, and it's absolutely not the case that credit came after money. <laughs> I, I mean, if anything, it may have been the other way around, but the, 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 so I, I'm not so uh, keen on, on that um, uh, issue. Now, the final part of this chapter, however, is very significant in the problem it poses. Now, I argued in the first lecture that Marx was always very reluctant to get into questions of supply and demand. And his general argument was, well, in the marketplace, when supply and demand in equilibrium are in equilibrium, they cease to explain anything, so there's no discussion of supply and demand uh, in volume one of Capital at all. But here he comes across uh, a conundrum as he starts off at the bottom of 196. The capitalist casts less value into circulation in the form of money than he draws out of it, because he casts in more value in the form of commodities than he has extracted in the form of commodities. Insofar as he functions merely as a personification of capital, as industrial capitalist, his supply of commodity value is always greater than his demand for it. If his supply and demand match one another in this respect, this would be equivalent to the non-valorization of his capital. It would not have functioned as productive capital. 
in the middle of the page then, it can, kind of says, the greater the difference between the capitalist's supply and his demand, the greater the additional commodity value that he supplies over the commodity value that he demands, the greater the rate at which he valorizes his capital. His goal is not simply to cover his demand with his supply, but have the greatest possible excess of supply over demand. Now what this is saying is that there's an imbalance between supply and demand here. And he then talks about exactly how this comes about towards the bottom. The demand is the demand for means of production, C, plus the demand for labour power, which is V. So his demand is C plus V, as he puts it at the bottom there. How much means of production do I need? How much labour power do I need? His output at the end of the day is C plus V plus S. Well, where is the effective demand to absorb the S? Where is it coming from? Um, I mean, that, that's, that's the problem. It's why I, I, in my work I call it the capital surplus absorption problem. Where, does, where is there sufficient demand at the end of the day to absorb the surplus which is being produced? And how is that surplus which is produced in commodity form reabsorbed as use values? When the demand was C plus V, you've now got commodities, commodity amount which is C plus V plus S. Where's the, where's the use value demand for that S? Somebody must, must want more of it for, for some reason, and somebody must have the money to pay for it for some reason. I mean, this is an imbalance that is emerging within, within the system. And, you know, the Marx then does some of the funny things he actually does. He says, well, okay, there's some issues here, and there's the question of turnover time, well, you know, that's going to be dealt with later, and there's the issue of fixed capital, well, we're going to, we can deal with that later, but they don't really affect matters too seriously. And he, he looks at it in this way, 199, he says, assume that the capitalist consumes the entire surplus value M and reconverts only the original capital sum C into productive capital. The capitalist demand is now equal in value to his supply, that is, the capitalist has to have the extra money to pay for the extra commodities. I mean, in other words, the, the capitalist has to pay to keep this system going. Doesn't sound right somehow, does it? But, and, and so he then does this little calculation, and the remaining fifth he consumes as non-capitalist, not in his function as capitalist, but for his private requirements or pleasures. In other words, he turns into a pleasure-seeking individual, and he's got some loose cash somewhere, so he buys up the whole surplus and, and eats it, or consumes it, or does whatever, you know. But then Marx kind of said, this assumption is equivalent to assuming the non-existence of capitalist production, and therefore the non-existence of the industrial capitalist himself. For capitalism is already essentially abolished once we assume that it is enjoyment that is driving motive and not enrichment. Now, this is kind of a very interesting kind of question. If you assume the capitalist is just out to enjoy himself or herself, you know, he's kind of saying that wouldn't be capital. Capitalism is about enrichment. It's about, it's about 
gaining more of that social power, which is money. That's what it's about. And he says, he, so, he, so he's kind of saying, no, it's not, it's not pleasure, it's not the search for pleasure that drives this system, it's the search for power. And I think it's kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of interesting. But if it's a search for power, there's still this problem of how on earth are you going to find the extra money and the extra demand for use values at the end of the day to absorb the surplus when your own demand is C plus V and you have produced C plus V plus S. This is a conundrum. And. Uh, He then says, well, moreover, you know, about the, the former argument, it is technically impossible. The capitalist must not only form a reserve capital to guard against price fluctuations and in order to be able to await the most favorable conjunctions for buying and selling, he must accumulate capital in order to extend production and incorporate technical advances into his productive organism. This is not an answer to the question. It may contain a little bit of the answer. But in itself, it's not an adequate answer to the question of where does the extra demand come from to absorb the surpluses at the end of the day? And then, of course, one of those infuriating lines, sentences at the end, we have ignored credit here, and it pertains to credit if the capitalist deposits the money that he accumulates in a bank, for example, on current account bearing interest. Well, you know, you can do better than that. I mean, I. I <laughs> but this problem he's posed is a very interesting one. How does, how does capital square the, cir the circle? How does it do it? And, and you know, uh, and he's saying that, he's, he's, he's saying that simply the capitalist having money and, and just using that money to consume the surplus themselves. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work because that's not what capitalism is about. So I think this is a very interesting kind of conundrum that is posed here, but there's not, there's not an answer given to it. Now we're going to find, as we go through the text, at various moments he's going to come back to this kind of question and we're going to have to try to find an answer to it. But at this point, it seems to me, in the text, he's not given us an answer. I really don't. I mean, maybe you think it's an answer. I don't know. I mean, uh, you let me know. Um, but I, I, I certainly don't find it uh, an adequate answer. So, okay, this is this chapter. Do you have any kind of comments yourselves on it? And other issues in here that you would want to raise? Or is it? Okay, well, if not, then um, let me. Let me go back to a question I posed last time. Like, out of these four chapters, how do we define what is capital? And I think uh, you can come to some conclusion about that. First, it is not money. Money can only perform money functions, he says, which is buying and selling. So money is not capital. But, of course, there is a money circuit. And there are certain reasons why we 
uh, would be tempted to believe and even have a fetish belief that money is capital. And the reason is twofold, the first I've already mentioned, which is that the lust for money power. And Marx readily concedes that is one of the driving forces of this system, that the lust for money power is, is crucial. And the second reason why we might believe that money is capital is because it's only in the money form that we can clearly disaggregate between the original capital and the surplus. It's only in the money form that we can actually measure whether we've made a profit, whether we've gained a surplus. So the fact that it's a driving force at the outset and becomes a driving force, the acquisition of money power, is a, is a major incentive. It's not the only incentive, but it's a certainly a major incentive. The drive for money power is an incentive. The fact that you, that's in the money form is where you can see whether you've augmented it or not, leads us to think that, well, money is, the money circuit is the form of capital that really matters. And the only one that matters. But then Marx is very explicit about the idea that that is delusional. That's an illusion. The reality lies somewhere else. And in part, of course, it's because money power was there before capital. So money had to pre-exist. The second thing he mentions as uh, a hallmark of capital is the buying and selling of labour power, and he disses that and says no. There was lots of buying and selling of, of labour services prior, so it's not money, and it's not buying and selling of labour power. It's not even a labour market. It's not even the existence of labour as a, as a commodity. But clearly, labour power as a commodity had to be there for capital to get in motion in the same way that money had to be there. He also says it's not commodity markets. Because there could not be capital unless there were already commodity markets where the capitalist can go and buy means of production and the wage labourers can go and buy their wage goods. So it's not commodity markets. It's not labour markets, it's not commodity markets, it's not money. And very curiously, I signalled there was this curious passage where Marx says, well, you know, production can also be non-capitalistic. So it's not production. And he kind of says, the production process has to be the same no matter whether it's a capitalist or non-capitalist form of production. I mean, if you're, if you're growing wheat, you're growing wheat, you know, and there's certain things that you have to do to grow wheat, and that's it. So what is it that defines capital? 
And I think the answer to that is, it's the social relations. between capital and labour that permits the production of surplus value. That is what defines capital. It's the class relation between capital and labour which defines it. And the story he seems to be telling in these, these chapters is this, that all of these elements had to pre-exist. The rise of this social relation, this class relation between capital and labour. And it was only when those preconditions existed that this class relation could form and take off in the way it did. So from this it would follow that if you want to come up with, uh, say, the communist hypothesis, as everybody likes to talk about these days, you know, what would its essence be? Well, to the degree that communism has to be about the negation of capital, it must be the ab abolition of this class relation. That the aim of communism is the abolition of this class relation between capital and labour. And therefore the abolition of surplus value creation and production. But I think what is also being told in this, these chapters is this, that once this capital-labour relation comes into being, it actually captures money functions, and labour markets, and commodity markets, and production. It captures them and transforms them into something which is highly supportive of the perpetuation of this class relation. In other words, it, those are the preconditions which give rise to this, but this, once it's set, set in motion, actually transforms those preconditions into conditions of reproduction of this. So simply transforming this is not going to make it. And we can see that, I think, because when you say, well, what would replace it here, when Marx writes about that, which he doesn't do very often, he nearly always uses the figure of associated labour. The associated labourer. You know, Marx is always, everybody's always saying Marx is about the state taking everything over. He never talks about the state taking things over. He always talks about the associated labourer taking over production. Now, here's a very interesting thing. In this country, for example, there's a great deal of, su of, of support for worker self-management. Great deal of support, you know, political support. I mean, when the Tea Party is going on about socialism and Marxism, they're talking about state control. If you went to the Tea Party and said, are you in favour of associated labourers controlling their own system of production, probably people in the Tea Party would say yes. And you say, well, you're a Marxist then. <laughs> and Glenn Beck would have a great time, you know. But the point I'm making is that 
that, that actually there's a, there is a very interesting history of the attempt to displace this class relation through things like autogestion, uh, class, you know, worker control, and there were movements in the 1970s and 1980s, and of course uh, this is, a, if you like, one of the anarchist solutions, so you go to something like Mondragon or somewhere and you would see self-management and, and all those kinds of things. And right now there are factories operating in Argentina that were taken over in the wake of the crisis of 2001, 2002, and they're still operating as cooperatives and all this kind of stuff. Now, but the interesting thing about all of these experiments is, one of the things they come up against is dealing with the, all of these other forms of organizations that have now been reconstructed into conditionalities for the reproduction of this class relation. And they are actually organized and orchestrated. So many of the self-management schemes and takeovers come to grief because they have to borrow money, they have to go into credit markets for some of the reasons that Marx would talk about, fluctuations and you know, this and that, and so, and they go into the credit markets, as soon as they go into credit markets the banks get hold of them and then boom, they're, 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 they're gone. So, so what a socialist project would be about is not only the transformation of this class relation, but a very deep understanding of how these other forms of circulation actually operate around this class relation. Now, I think Marx is always drawn to what I call a co-evolutionary structure that all of these elements have to change in order to sustain the reproduction of the class relation. But the class relation redefines what those elements are about. Now this is consistent, if you recall, with Marx's argument in the Grundrisse. Remember when he said, production dominates over all else, including over production in its one-sided form, i.e. over the material process of production. Because what Marx meant by production in that Grundrisse passage was the production of surplus value through and via the class relation. So I think in these chapters you can come to this definition of capital. When people say, what is capital? You kind of say, well, what? At its core lies the class relation between capital and labor. But that, that class relation has reconstructed not only these elements, but of course elements of notions of private property and all those, there are a lot of other things. I mean, when I put in commodity markets in here, it, it means a certain kind of structure of markets. But this also says something interesting about what a communist society might look like. If, if this is the case, and I'm, I'm taking a bit of a, a, a flyer in terms of what, what it is that Marx is saying, if this is the case, then communism would not necessarily mean the abolition of commodity markets. It wouldn't necessarily mean the abolition of money. It wouldn't necessarily mean even the abolition of trading and labor services. In, in other words, there's sometimes a vision that says that somehow or other communism has to, has to abolish all of this. Whereas it seems to me that given Marx's notion of co-evolutionary transformation, the development of these new forms of associated labor, which displace the capital-labor relation, has to be accompanied by a restructuring of all of these elements. That is, how would, in a world in which workers are controlling via associated labor production processes, how would 
transfers of labour services occur? How would people move from, say, one line of production to another line of production? How would that happen? How could it be set up? Well, there have been long histories sometimes. In, you know, in Paris in the 19th century, they had labour exchanges and they had houses, all kinds of things. So th there are ways to start to think about it. But programmatically, it would seem to me that the transformation to communism and socialism is going to be about the reconstruction of all of these other elements so that they no longer operate so clearly in support of the reproduction of the class relations. So I think that, that you know, I, I, this is a sort of very general kind of, kind of position, it seems to me, that emerges from, from these chapters. Because I think that what Marx is doing when he's talking about capital as process, rather than capital as thing, that it is a process of circulation, which, however, relies at its core on the Pushing, on pushing this class relation. I think this is, a, you know, this is one of the things I would get out of these chapters, and I think it's kind of, kind of, kind of just interesting to, uh, to, to, to think about. I mean, again, I, I, you can make the book exciting if you want by doing a few things like this with it, but you have to work at it a bit. But, but it's actually implicit in his text. I mean, he is very clear. It's delusional to think money is capital, and the money circuit has a priority. It, 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 it's not the buying and selling of labour power that matters. It's not, you know, I mean, it's very explicit about those things, but you have to add them all up. And, uh, you know, Engels complained, you know, to somebody about volume two, he says, you know, there's no red meat for the political agitator. <laughs> well, actually, you can create some red meat for the <laughs> political agitator by kind of saying that programmatically, this is what, this is what a, a communist hypothesis should look like. And not some abstract philosophical conception. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that's, it, that, that's, that's very tangible into the historical dynamic of the construction of capitalism, which therefore is about, if you like, what the transformation project has to be uh, in the move away from capitalism into something else. Maybe you have some questions about comments among that. Gene, you want to? Oh, yeah, my question is, in your opinion, does um, the Chicago uh, economist Becker and his attempt to put a value on human capital, does that fit anywhere? Not at all. No. No, I mean, this, uh, I mean the, the whole kind of attempt, uh, human capital theory and all the rest of it is to move, uh, move away from from, from all of this. It's about, it's, it, it's simply about uh, you know, trying to reconceptualize labor power in a way that's a bit more sort of user-friendly for, you know, for, for, for the audience. Yeah. I have a, maybe a possible small example for what you're alluding to. If you look at the development of cooperatives, and in particular the so-called Cleveland model, uh, which I find interesting. You see that, so different cooperatives form a conglomerate. They try to redefine their relationship to the state, Cleveland, so that the state gives money to, uh, to support these cooperatives. They get money from a development fund, which is not private banks. Um, and they have to pay after 
they have to pay 10% of their profits back into that development fund so that other cooperatives can be supported. Right? So this seems to me very, very, very modest level an attempt first to create different social relations uh, yeah. in the production process within a hostile environment, which is a market and capitalism and global capitalism, but then in, in some respect try to redefine the relation to, to money, to commodity markets on, on a local basis. Whether that's sustainable or not, I don't know. But it's, uh, these are hopeful elements. Yes, there was a long history of that. And I, the, you know, for instance, the sorts of experimentations that are going on with solidarity economies in, in Latin America, and one of the things they've started to do is to look at their supply chains. Uh, they kind of say, well, you know, we have to get our inputs. Where do we get our inputs from? Well, we're only going to get our inputs from another cooperative somewhere. <laughs> and, and, and then when we make something, we're going to sell it to another cooperative. So you start to then actually network cooperatives in this kind of way. And again, uh, the whole kind of financing of this becomes problematic. So at some point or other, you know, people will say, well, we'll probably have to set up our own forms of banking or something of that kind. So this is, you know, there's the, the reason, you know, there's been a long history of experimentation with this. But there's also been a long history of bitter disappointment. Uh, because there's been an inability to move usually from something that's rather... I mean, even the, 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 the co-op, even the factory occupiers in, in, in uh, Argentina, uh, they're not very large factories. They're quite small. And, and uh, it's when you get the big ones that you can start to sort of really have a, a, different, uh, uh, a different impact. So I, I think that, you know, that's an interesting kind of question. Let's look, let's look at, at all of those, those experiments and then also look at you know, what the difficulties were. And I think what Marx theoretically is saying to you, you can see what the difficulties are going to be because of the way in which this formed out of that and then captured that and transformed it into its, its own kind of environment in which it could flourish. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, uh, animals making, building an environment that's favorable to their own kind of reproduction. Well, capital has built an institutional and also other environment which is favorable to its own reproduction. And we have to recognize that so if you try to put something alien into it, it's, it's likely to have a lot of trouble without there being simultaneous transformations of this kind. Marx claims capital is a perpetual united flow, yet it is a flow of interruptions. To extend capital, you must hoard, therefore. What are the major contradictions uh, that Marx presents in this volume that have potential to give rise to real social uh, and economic change as you see it? Each moment has potentiality for a contradiction. As he says, you have money in your pocket and you're a capitalist, uh, but if there's no labor power out there and you cannot buy a means of production because, I don't know, there's a strike somewhere, then the money is no use to you. So at each one of these moments of transformation from money into buying the commodities, which can then go into production, each one of those moments is a possibility for a disruption. If the commodity they produce can't find a person who wants, needs, desires, and can afford it, then also there's another moment. So there's a, if you go across all of these moments 
and, and, and the movement, you see potential blockages at each, each one of those points. And I cannot predict to you exactly which one might become the major blockage. But at a particular historical moment, we may find one of them is dominant. And, and actually, my view of the history of capitalism is that usually capitalism hits a blockage of some kind and goes, does all kinds of things to get around it, like uh, finance was a bit of a blockage at the end of the 1960s, and so you deregulated finance to get around it, and you got around it, and the, the thing starts to flow again, but then you find the contradiction erupts somewhere else. It erupt, erupts in labor markets, or it erupts in commodity markets, so you never know which one is where the blockage is going to be. And one of the things we have to do when we're looking at the application of Marx's theory to a particular situation is to say, where's the primary blockage this time? What happens when you relieve that blockage? Where will it go next? And, and uh, you know, we see these transitions around us. Uh, for example, we had this blockage in the financial system with the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It was relieved by state activity, you know. We've now got a blockage around state debt. Okay, so we move it around. And so I think what Marx does by theorizing this flow and through these different points of potential blockage, he then says to us, in effect, you go and find out where the main, main blockage is right now, and you'll probably find it's this place rather than that place. One minute it's labor markets, another minute it could be scarcity of raw materials, or then it can be, you know, so there's all kinds of ways in which you can get these blockages. The next two chapters are, are uh, again, I think, extremely interesting in uh, their implications and uh, very, very important to think about um, because uh, there are many processes going on around us that I think fit into what is being talked about here. But in order to understand these two chapters, you have to, uh, in a way, absorb one very foundational fact, and that is that Marx is resolutely opposed to the idea that any value can be created out of circulation. Uh, value is created in production, and that's it. Uh, which means that uh, circulation time and costs of circulation uh, are not part of the productive apparatus of capital. They are restrictions, deductions, uh, and the like out of whatever is produced in production. Now what this does, however, is to pose uh, some uh, very difficult issues, and I, um, I generally don't suggest that you read the sort of lengthy introductions to this, but on the question of productive and unproductive labor, what is productive and what is unproductive, uh, given the way Marx has set it up, the only labor that's productive of value and surplus value is that which is employed in production. Now a lot of labor is employed in circulation. But as far as Marx is concerned, that is defined as unproductive labor. It's not unproductive in the sense that it's unnecessary, and it's not unproductive in the sense that it's, you know, lazy, idle people doing it or anything of that kind, but it's unproductive of value and surplus value. So, well, be careful, it's not unproductive of surplus value, we'll get to that in, in, in a minute. 
so this then raises the kind of uh, a, a bit of a conflict between one of the ideas that is laid out in volume one of Capital, which is when Marx starts to talk not about the individual labourer but about the collective labourer. Now his imaginary there is the factory, the factory in which, well, some people are actually engaging in the production, other people are, I don't know, cleaning up and, 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 and doing things, but they're part, he says, of the collective labour. And if the collective labour is important, then what happens when, say, the factory subcontracts uh, the cleaning operations and other functions uh, to somewhere else. So they really come in and sort of help with the circulation process, not with the, you know, it's, in other words, there's a lot of, a lot of real problems here uh, about the accounting. And uh, the way in which he does agr agree that the one aspect of circulation which is productive of value is the actual physical transportation. So transportation is productive of value. But actually all of the labour that's put into uh, the actual uh, buying and selling activity is not. And when it gets to something like warehousing and so on, you find yourself in the odd thing that somebody who's moving stuff around with a forklift truck is productive. When it's put down, it's unproductive. You know, I mean, uh, in other words, it, 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 it creates an accounting nightmare in terms of what is productive and what isn't, and, and, and a sort of a sociological nightmare of how to classify this kind of labour as being productive and this kind of labour as being unproductive. So there are a lot of issues in these chapters that need to be looked at. But the most important thing that they do establish is this notion of the continuity, and the notion that that continuity uh, is both temporal and also uh, entails certain necessary overhead expenses and certain other uh, necessary aspects of which is going to cost you something. So the chapter, is, the two chapters deal with first circulation time and then with cost. cost. So time and cost, you know, in a, in a way uh, go together rather rather neatly. And it, he sets up some definitions which are that there is production time and there is circulation time. But that the production time the circulation process says, well okay, there's production time, but within that there is something called working time. which is the time in which labour is actively employed, whereas the production time is the time where capital is actually within the production process. Now, there are periods, of course, when it's not doing anything, and we encountered this again in Volume 1 when Marx kind of said, well, that's lost time from the standpoint of the capitalist, therefore there's a push uh, for shift work and for night labour and all the rest of it to keep the, you know, keep the working time as close as possible to the production time. But the distinction between working time and production time becomes uh, rather, rather significant. And there are various things that he introduces here which we need to uh, 
uh, go through. First, um, he says this, the production time includes, of course, the period of the labour process, but this is not all. And he then goes into the question of, well, what happens to machines, buildings, which serve for constant repetition, so the fixed capital is, is coming back into the uh, question once more. You need a certain reserve stock of raw and ancillary materials, he said, so that the production process can keep going. And there is therefore a difference between capital's production time and what he then calls functioning time, the time during which they function as means of production and thus serve in the production process, the pauses during which the production process and thus also the functioning of the means of production incorporated in it is interrupted, the time during which they are held in reserve as conditions for the process. He also mentions the fact that there are many production processes where you need to keep capital in production but there's no labour being applied to it. And he says, well, it's like the maturing of wine, uh, the growing of corn, uh, labour is not being applied, the corn's just growing, or the wine's sitting in barrels and it's maturing and something of that kind. So the production time, he suggests, is always greater than the working time. And in that production time there is also a lot of capital which is in what he calls in, 2000, in, in page 201 a latent state or idle capital. And this is an inevitability within the production process. Now, what he then suggests at the bottom of 202, it is clear that the nearer production time and working time approach to equality, the greater the productivity and valorization of a given productive capital in a given space of time. The tendency of capitalist production is therefore to shorten as much as possible the excess of production time over working time. But although the production time of capital may diverge from its working time, it always includes the latter, and the excess itself is a condition of the production process. I always think to myself, well, I wonder what would have happened if Marx at this point had done what he did for on the chapter on the working day in volume one of, of Capital and looked at the history of attempts to deal with this gap between working time and production time. And how what this means, of course, is that there is a, a question which is production time plus circulation time, that the whole thing is really encountered as the turnover time of capital. And if Marx had introduced here the coercive laws of competition, you would see straight away that those people who have shorter turnover times are going to be able to drive out those people who have slow turnover times. Those people who have reduced the distant distinction between working time and production time will have an advantage over those who have not. So a lot of capitalist competition has, has been focused upon this question of time. And the result has been, of course, that a lot of what's gone on in capitalist society has been about speed-up, <coughs> acceleration, moving faster, going through these stages as quickly as you can, reducing, you know, and you do that by all kinds of means. Uh, you know, 
think I probably mentioned pigs last week or some other time, you know, well they have three litters a year now. So you're speeding up even, even reproduction processes of that sort. And of course with computers and all the rest of it, what you're, what you're beginning to do is to see the operations emerging which are very much around reducing the gap between working time and production time. So, now the circulation time is the amount of time you're spending out in the market. And again, competition starts to become very important because the less time you spend out in the market, the sooner you get your capital back, and the sooner you can go back to the beginning. So the kind of competition around the overall structure of the turnover time becomes very important. But during circulation time, Marx puts it as very firmly as, as, as possible on the middle of 203, circulation time and production time are mutually exclusive. During its circulation time, capital does not function as productive capital and therefore produces neither commodities nor surplus value. Then towards the bottom page, the, the expansion and contraction of the circulation time hence acts as a negative limit on the contraction or expansion of the production time or the scale on which a capital of a given magnitude can function. The more the circulation metamorphoses of capital are only ideal, i.e. the closer the circulation time comes to zero, the more the capital functions and the greater is its productivity and self-valorization. If a capitalist works to order, receives payment on the delivery of his product and is paid in his own means of production, then his time of circulation <coughs> approaches zero. And further, capital circulation time generally restricts its production time and hence its valorization process. Again, what seems to me is missing in this, in this chapter is you're laying it out in a formal kind of way, but then you're not integrating it with the dynamics of the coercive laws of competition, as he did in France, for instance, in the, cha the chapter on relative surplus value in Volume 1 of Capital. If you inserted the coercive laws of competition into here, you would see immediately that there is going to be intense competition uh, within, the capital, within the capitalist class over the question of turnover time, and that this would not be simply a formal relationship, but would actually be a very dynamic, historical uh, kind of process. But then he also raises something which is, I think, important, because in, in Volume 1 of Capital, he generally, when he's looking at circulation time, of course, he's looking at a, pro a process of the following sort. The commodity is going into money, which is then going back into the commodity form. So he's looking at these metamorphoses in circulation, that, that money brings us back into the production process again. So he's looking at this, and in Volume 1, he generally made the argument that money into commodities was an easier transition than commodities into money, for the very simple reason that money is a universal form of value and commodity is a particular form of value, and that therefore there were more dangers attached to holding commodities than to holding money. But actually here he's, he's, he's problematizing that in, I think, very important ways. Um, and he says this at the bottom of 204, we already know from the analysis of simple commodity circulation, Volume 1, Chapter 3, 
that C to M, the cell, is the most difficult part of its metamorphosis, and thus forms the greater part of the circulation time in normal circumstances. As money, value exists in its ever-convertible form, and so on. What in the, is involved in the circulation process of capital in its phase, phase M to C, is its transformation into those commodities which form the specific elements of productive capital in a given sphere of investment. This is a different story than simply being a consumer and having money and deciding, going out there and kind of, well, if I couldn't find a shirt, I could buy some shoes or something. You know. The means of production, he said, may not be present on the market, needing first to be produced. They may have to be drawn from distant markets, or there may be dislocations in their normal supply, changes of price, etc. In short, a mass of circumstances that are not recognisable in the simple change of form M into C, but require for this part of the circulation phase either less time or more. Just as C into M and M into C are separated in time, so they may be also be separated in space. Yay, here comes space, so I'm very happy about that, you know. And then there is some stuff which goes on which we'll, I'll, I'll come back to in a little bit. Here he starts to talk about uh, some of the, the aspects of circulation time which are connected to the nature of the commodity, the ease of, tr ease of transport, perishability, and, and questions, and, and the relationship of all of that to means of transport, and so on. But the important point to re remember here is that when we're talking about a very specific, that I need a specific, commodity, and it has to come from somewhere. If, I, if, if, if for example, I'm, I'm, um, making, I'm, I'm busy you know, joining in the Green Revolution, and I need rare earth metals, and 95% of the world trade in, world in rare earth metals uh, belongs to China, and the Chinese suddenly decide, as they did with the Japanese, uh, the customs officials would forget to process the export of rare earth metals uh, to Japan. Well, what does the Japanese do? They can't do anything. And, and they're in fact uh, captive to something of this kind. So there's a lot of discussion right now about how on earth are you going to deal with rare earth metals uh, problem because China controls it. And there have been some signs that China is willing to use that politically uh, any time it, it wants to. And if that's the circumstance, then going from M into rare earth metals, I mean, if, if, if the C you want is rare earth metals, because you've joined the Green Revolution fever, by the way, it's nice that this Green Revolution exists and that, but on the other hand, if you rely on rare earth metals, the environmental conditions under which rare earth metals are extracted are horrendous, which is one of the reasons why the single rare earth metal producer in the United States has closed down, because the environmental conditions were absolutely awful, and the Chinese don't care about those kinds of things, so they can, you know, that's why they've got such control over it. So now they're kind of trying to figure out how to reopen the one American mine of rare earth metals and to do it in a way that is environmentally friendly. So, you know, wonderful these things, you know, you're going to save the environment by destroying it. You know, I mean, it's these things you really have to watch out for. But, but Marx's general point here is, I think, well taken that in a complicated division of labour, a world of division of labour and demands for production, uh, raw materials and, 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 the, and the rest, if you can't get the parts or something like that, then you're in real, uh, you're in real difficulty. So the question of turnover time then is broached here. It's going to come back in other forms later on, but 
I think one of the issues that I would like to sort of suggest would re could really deal with a, uh, a great deal of expansion in Marx's analysis is this question of turnover time. And Engels, for example, felt, uh, and Marx came to this relatively late, I think, uh, so that it's not mentioned in volume three. And Engels felt that he really had to insert a chapter in volume three about the impact of changing turnover times on rates of profit. And I think that's a very important uh, question. I'm, for me, anyway, sort of being interested in the general nature of temporality under capitalism and how temporality is changing and how speed up has been uh, about it. I mean, again, you could imagine a, a, a chapter uh, about the history of uh, turnover time and what that's been all about and what the technologies are which are changing turnover times and how uh, the technologies are not only hardware, they're also software, organizational forms and, 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 and the like. Chapter 6 on the costs of circulation. He starts with pure circulation costs. Again, I don't think there's too much to say here, except that, uh, you know, labor is taken up uh, in this process. Now, we've got another conundrum here, which, which has its parallel in Volume 1. In, in Volume 1, in the theory of relative surplus value, Marx says the following, a machine is constant capital and constant capital cannot create value. So the machine cannot be a source of value. But the machine can be a source of surplus value. How can that be? Well, if I have a superior machine to you, I go into the market and I get an excess profit which is an extra piece of the surplus value. The other thing that happens in Volume 1 of Capital is that innovations in wage goods industries reduce the value of labor power. So machinery, insofar as it reduces the value of wage goods, reduces the value of labor power and therefore increases the rate of surplus value. So machines cannot be a source of value, but they can be a source of surplus value. We have the same thing here. The games that are played in circulation cannot produce value, but they can produce surplus value. Okay, and they can do it in two ways. One is, if I'm a merchant, and I'm just doing the, the circulation bit, I can employ labor and then work them for 12 hours a day and you know, pay them the equivalent of six hours and work them twelve hours. So I can get a tremendous amount of surplus value out of the labor that is deployed in retail industry or, or you know, anything of that sort. I can get a tremendous amount of surplus value out of it. So Marx's accounting point, however, is that that surplus value which you're getting is to some degree a deduction out of the rest of the surplus value which is being produced in, in production. But it is a source of, of, of surplus value to the individual capitalist. It can also be a source for capital in general, in the following sense. That some cost of circulation is always going to be incurred, no question about it. And
then what Marx does is to therefore use this term for Frey at the bottom of page 209, and he kind of says, the necessary function is performed, the content of his labour creates neither value nor products, he is, he is himself part of the forfray of production, the necessary costs of production, or translated at the bottom as overhead costs of production. What Marx is pr proposing here is that there are necessary costs associated with circulation, and they are unavoidable, and they are deductions out of value and surplus value produced in production. But if, I, if it is organised in such a way, in a capitalistic way, so that labour is employed and they're paid their wage but they give you, you know, twelve hours of labour in return for the equivalent of six hours of labour, then the necessary costs of circulation are diminished, in general. So there's less deduction out of surplus value. So in other words, the, the, the organisation of the retail, wholesale, merchant capital and all the rest of it, the organisation of it is really crucial to trying to keep down the necessary costs. And one of the ways in which those necessary costs are kept down is of course to exploit the living daylights out of labour. That's one of the ways you do it at the same time as the people who are organising that labour are going to gain surplus value. So there's a complicated story here that while on the one hand in the macro things, value is only produced in, in, in production, surplus value is, is redistributed across both production and circulation, according to certain rules which we will get into when we look at the chapters on merchants' capital. And that, so that's an important issue which is set up here. But the, the, the necessary costs are unavoidable costs which attach to circulation, and it's useful labour, and necessary labour that's being performed there, it is just labour which is not, as far as Marx is concerned, productive of value. Again, this raises some kind of questions of what happens when marketing functions are internalised within the firm, are they part of the collective labourer, you know some of the issues I was mentioning earlier, or, or do they, you know, when do they get externalised from the firm and, 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 and all the rest of it. So he then goes to bookkeeping and kind of says, well okay, bookkeeping is a, you know, necessary cost and tends to grow with time and, 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 and so there's going to be kind of uh, banks get involved and accountants and all the rest of it, so those are part of the necessary costs. I'm not going to talk about that too much. And then there's a certain cost which attaches to renewing the means of circulation, i.e. the money form. And then in section two he's really talking about costs of storage. Now again, I, I, don't, I, I don't feel inclined to go into any great depth uh, about what, what marks his take on this, but really, again, this is a long history, which is a very important history within capitalism, which can be really sort of summed up in the idea of the management of uh, of scheduling uh, and 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 scheduling, you know, so that so that everything is there, right, waiting for you when you, when when you need it. And again. 
organizational form here becomes absolutely critical. It's a critical form of competitive advantage. So what you would look at and look at this, uh, what he's talking about here and say, look, uh, why is it the Walmart has the advantage it has? Well, it's, 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 it's dealt with the problems he's talking about here in, in this way rather than that way. What was one of the big advantages the Japanese auto companies had in the 1980s? Well, it was something called just-in-time systems. And, and the big thing that's being managed here is the inventory. How much inventory do you need to keep on hand? And Marx kind of says, well, there's always got to be an inventory around somewhere, but where, did, where is it? And he says, well, it can, it can be on the docks, in which case somebody's holding it, and then the merchant can go to the docks and get it on bit, or the capitalist can go to the docks and get it bit by bit. It can be in the household. I mean, the inventory in my refrigerator is close to zero. <laughs> because, because, you know, seriously, because, because there are so many shops around the neighborhood that, that actually they can carry the inventory. I'm not carrying it. When you're, when, you're, when you're living out, when you're living out uh, in, uh, you know, some way out place, you go to people's refrigerators, they're stacked full of stuff, you know, and the freezer's full of stuff and everything. I mean, they carry the inventory and carry the, carry the costs of it because, because of their situation. So Marx is kind of saying, well, there's a, there's a, the inventory's got to be somewhere and it depends on who's got access to it and why. And, and uh, you know, and it, 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 it's... it's and who bears the cost? Because that's idle capital sitting there. As a consumer, I can, I can relieve the merchant of some of the cost by, you know, going in there. You see people go into these supermarkets in semi-rural areas and come out with, you know, two cartloads of, of stuff. And you kind of go, well, they've, they've actually helped relieve the merchant of the, of the inventory. And they're, they're now carrying it, you know. So, so you know, there's games. You've, one of the advantages of being in New York City, one of the few advantage of being in New York City is you don't, you, don't, uh, you don't have to have a large inventory of stuff in your larder, you know, I mean, it's kind of a... Uh, but this is... So, so Marx is raising these kinds of questions, and, and really, really this whole section here is about the management of it. And I, and I always kind of think to myself, you know, somebody should write a great book about the history of management of inventories. I mean, there's a terrific book to be written, terrific PhD thesis if anyone wants to do it. It's a fantastic kind of thesis. Really, you're just looking at the techniques and, and, and how the competitive advantage, uh, and again, Marx doesn't introduce the coercive laws of competition <coughs> in here, but if you introduce the coercive laws of competition, you see immediately there's going to be all of this kind of struggle over, you know, in, if, if I have to carry a lot of inventory and you don't, uh, then I'm in a, you know, I'm in a, I'm, I'm wrapping up a load of my capital in the inventory, not in, not in doing things. Whereas, so, and Marx then talks about, well, you know, revolutions in, in, in all of this release money capital. So the amount of money capital that somebody has to, to put into production is contingent upon how much they have to put by for, for in terms of inventory. So this is all about this sort of stock formation in general. And, and these, he says, are... Uh, um, and again, I think I'll just leave you to sort of uh, fuss with, 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 with the details. But uh, he's still adamant at the end when he says the question now arises, this is on 222, to what extent these expenses enter into the value of commodities? And the answer is they don't, they can't. 
again, he introduces the notion of competition and so on. He says, well, you know, they, they, they don't. Though he does introduce for a little while the whole kind of question of what's the difference between involuntary and voluntary stock formation. So this again is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a very important topic. It's like turnover time. It's just sort of laid out there as, as, as you know, uh, as, as an issue, uh, and we don't really get much sense of the, of the dynamics in relationship to the history of, of capitalism. Now, this brings me to the part that I like best of all, which is all this stuff about transport and communications, which I've been delaying, so I'll just briefly deal, deal with it here. This is different from everything else. Um, He starts off, and I'll just go back over the pages here, he starts off around 134-35. Particular branches of industry in which the product of the production process is not a new objective product, a commodity. The only one of these that's economically important is the communication industry, both the transport industry proper. So what does it produce? Well, he says, people or commodities that are transported, what is produced is a change in their spatial location. That the, this is on 135, that the yarn finds itself in India instead of in England. So what the transport industry sells is the actual change of place. The useful effect produced is inseparably connected with the transport process. People and commodities travel together with the means of transport, and this journeying, the spatial movement of the means of transport, is precisely the production process accomplished by the transport industry. The exchange value of this useful effect is, depends upon, you know, new, the normal form of, you know, C plus V plus, plus S. So that's the first point he makes. Uh, the second point he makes is uh, around 205. When he talks about, this is where he's talking about circulation time, and mentions what I read to you before about stuff may be drawn from distant markets and things may get separated in space. And the, the reproduction process here, he says, has very special uh, qualities. And it's associated, however, at the bottom of the page, he says, the very form of existence of commodities, their existence as use values, set certain limits on the circulation of the commodity capital if they do not enter into productive or individual consumption within a certain interval of time according to their particular characteristics, if they are not sold within a definite time, then they get spoiled and lose together with their use value the property of being bearers of exchange value. Both the capital value contained in them and the surplus value added to it are lost. Use values remain the bearers of perennial and self-valorizing capital value only insofar as they are constantly renewed are replaced by new use values of the same or another kind. One of the costs, which he mentions much later on, is the cost of preserving people from preserving uh, goods from deterioration, which is a which is a cost, a significant cost. And further on, he kind of says, the limitation of the circulation time of commodity capital imposed by the spoiling of the commodity body itself is the absolute limit of this part of the circulation time, or of the time for which the commodity capital can circulate as commodity capital. The more perishable a commodity, more directly after its production it must be consumed and therefore sold. The smaller the distance it can move from its place of production, the narrower, therefore, is its sphere of spatial circulation, and the more local the character of its market. Hence, the more perishable a commodity, the greater are the absolute barriers to its circulation time, 
of its physical properties impose. And it says, capitalism can only deal in commodities of this kind in populous places, or to the extent that distances are reduced by the development of means of transport. Concentration of the production of an article in a few hands, however, and in a populous place, can create a relatively large market, even for an article of this kind, as is the case with big breweries, dairies, etc. Things going on here that are terribly, terribly important in the history of capital. I don't know if you're any familiar with a book by uh, William Cronin called uh, Nature's Metropolis, which is about uh, the history of Chicago in the 19th century. And one of the things that becomes absolutely crucial in that history is the advent of refrigeration. Uh, you know, how, I mean, there's great stories, of course, about some of the first attempts at refrigeration and all the ice melted and it all trickled, you know, trickled out of the trucks and, you know. But, but you know, we get, we get commodities. The food, supply, the food supply of cities around the world is crucially dependent upon refrigeration. And it's too bad all those, that refrigeration used to use CFCs and a few other things like that, but, but without refrigeration, where, where would, you know, what would the food supply of New York City look like? I mean, this, is, this again has a lot to do with you know, circulation time, uh, perishability, you know, and you can now get you know, raspberries from Guatemala or, you know, it, it, it's... The whole, the whole world has, 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 has changed in terms of food supply. I mean, in, in 1840, for example, nearly all of the milk of Paris was, was actually coming from the cow sheds within the city limits. By the time you get to 1870 and the railroads have come, it's coming from Brittany. And then later on it's coming from even further afield. And of course now through refrigeration and fast transport, I mean the whole kind of world has been trans transformed in terms of, for instance, just food, food supply structures. Now these cost, okay, and what Marx is kind of saying is the production of transport is, is itself of value, but I have difficulty of saying, well, well if, if the production of that is of value, why isn't the refrigerator? Well, the production of, you know, value is, is incorporated in the production of the refrigerator, but why isn't the organization of refrigeration and all that goes with it uh, actually part of the transport process. Is it part of the transport process or is it not? This is the kind of accounting nightmare that I'm, that I'm talking about that's involved here. But I think the, the most important thing that comes out of this is rather, rather than sort of get bogged down in the accounting nightmare, is to, is to look more closely at the dynamics of this process and what it's been about. I mean, I love his kind of comment about big breweries. Um, you know, in the 18th century, beer was almost always brewed just around the corner. Uh, it was sweet. It was hail house kind of stuff. It was more like mead than it was what we know as beer. And then they found a way to preserve it, and the preservative was, was hops. I did my PhD on hop growing in Kent in the 19th century, you know. So this just shows you how picayune you can get with PhD, but actually it was fantastically interesting. Uh, it was a very capital-intensive form of agriculture. They were using credit markets in London and, 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 and factor markets, and, and of course the hops were going into beer and they preserved it. So you could then, 
actually take ale from Britain and market it in India. So you'll still find something called India Pale Ales, built, you know, brewed by Bass, that used to sort of send barrels of beer out to English expatriates in India so they could have their glass of, you know, of beer. It, it, it's, a, it's a sort of, uh, sort of fantastic uh, sort, of, sort of story, but, but it was still the case when I was a kid that you knew where you were by what beer you were drinking. Um, I mean, I was a, when I was at home, I was, I was drinking Courage, and when I went as a student to Cambridge, I drank Flowers. I mean, you, know, you didn't have a choice about that. I mean, the same was true in this country in the 1960s. If you are in Baltimore, you drank National Bow. If you were in Pittsburgh, you drank Iron City. Then all of a sudden, it all explodes because the new transport relations, and all of a sudden, you're drinking some awful beer called Coors, you know, and you say, <laughs> where, where, did that, where did that crap come from? And, 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 then, and then all of a sudden you're drinking beer from Mexico, and then, then suddenly you're getting beer from, I don't know, all over the place, getting beer from India, you know, and then you go in and get... So, so I mean, so, so, so all of this has changed dramatically, but the point here is it's a systemic change, and it's not an accidental change, and what Marx is talking about here are processes which are revolutionizing transport and communications which are having a tremendous effect, and so if you want to talk about anything to do with kind of globalization or da-da-da-da, you've got to start talking about revolutions in transport technologies. And he's, I think, very clear about, about this in some of, these, some of these passages. So on 2.25, uh, he then sets into the end here to this, this business of, uh, of, of transport and communications. And it's a competitive sector, and he makes clear that the question of, on 228, that the absolute magnitude of value added by the transport of commodities stands in inverse proportion to the productive power of the transport industry, and in direct proportion to the distance to be covered, other circumstances remaining the same. The capitalist mode of production, he concludes, reduces the transport costs for the individual commodity by developing the means of transport and communication, as well as by concentrating transport, increasing its scale. It increases the part of social labour, both living and objectified, that is spent on commodity transport, firstly by transforming the great majority of all products into commodities, and then by replacing local by distant markets. The circulating of commodities, i.e. their actual course in space, can be resolved into the transport of commodities. The transport industry forms, on the one hand, an independent branch of production, and hence a particular sphere for the investment of productive capital. On the other hand, it is distinguished by its appearance as the continuation of a production process within the circulation process, and for the circulation process. This is an aspect of circulation that is productive of value, and that's the only one he concedes is productive of value within circulation, which is transport and communications. <coughs> now, uh, like I say, for, for all sorts of reasons, I think what's going on here is uh, a transformation of temporality questions of turnover time. Transformation, of course, questions of spatiality by investment in transport and communications, all of which have been centres of innovation. I mean, how many forms of innovation in the last two or three hundred years have been about speed-up and acceleration? How many forms of innovation in these last two hundred years have been about uh, reducing the friction of distance? 
And it's kind of amazing. You look at it and you kind of say, these are vast areas of, of, of innovation. And they're radically changing the time-space configuration of our lives. And when I, in the condition of post-modernity or something like that, came up with time-space compression, I was thinking about all this stuff. But instead of seeing it as an accident, you know, and just saying, oh, well, it just happened, you see why it happened. And you see what are the forces producing it. Why did it necessarily happen? Why was it inevitable that it would happen, given the dynamics of what capitalism is about? So, again, one of the strengths, it seems to me, that comes out of looking at Marx's notion of general laws of motion is to start to see all of these elements in the same way in Volume 1 of Capital, instead of seeing you know, technological change as something exogenous, something that existed out there because a brilliant entrepreneur had a great idea and that was that. No, what you see in Volume 1 of Capital is the technological innovation is something that is internalized within the dynamic of capitalism so that it must keep going. It cannot stop. All the time, capital continues to be the dominant player. And the same applies to these revolutions in temporality and spatiality. It's not, it's not, you know, again, you find people write about, oh, changing dimensions of space and time, it just happened, you know. You kind of go, it didn't just happen, it happened because there were certain forces there that were making it happen, and those forces have been very, very, very significant in changing our daily life. I mean, the fact that I can go out of here and have a beer from, you know, India or Mexico or Britain or something, instead of drinking, you know, you, know, you don't, of course there is a, a counter-hegemony these days, everybody wants to drink local brews, <laughs> except, except you now drink the local brew from Essex or somewhere like that in England <laughs> in a New York bar, you, I mean, this is getting crazy. But, but I mean, this is, but, but, you know, our daily lives have been radically transformed by this. And not by accident, and not by some great planner in the sky who kind of said, hey, that's a good idea. I mean, planners sometimes did say, well, we've got to innovate in this. But the advantages that come from this are very, very significant. And what Marx doesn't deal with, of course, is one of the other aspects of innovation in these fields is, of course, being military technologies. That advantages in terms of temporality and spatiality are very crucial in terms of military operations. I mean, if you can move faster than other people, then you know, you're likely to win. And so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a long, again, long history of that, and this is the kind of thing I like to, uh, to think about and write about and all the rest of it, that the, the temporal spatial dimensions of a capitalist system are partially hinted at, but Marx doesn't, as it were, sort of get expansive about it here. He does in parts of the Grundrisse. He doesn't, for example, use the phrase here he uses in the Grundrisse, which is the annihilation of space through time. And the, and the annihilation of all spatial barriers. I mean, that's what he talks about in the Grundrisse. To some degree, he talks about that in the Communist Manifesto. That capital's destiny, if you want to call it that, is to indeed integrate the world and, and to revolutionize all of these aspects right the way through from, you know, the canal system to you know, cyber optic networks and the internet and all the rest of it. So it is a very, for me, this is a very important part of the, of the argument and it's embedded in these first parts of, uh, of, of capital. 
We're getting close to the end of time. Anybody got any kind of comments or questions you want to? In the question around innovation, it seems like to me that um, the capitalist state uh, has a lot to do with the, um, shall I say, um, pushing forward these innovations at the cost of the, um, uh, from the tax base itself. In other words, usually the innovations are done um, maybe through the Defense Department or Commerce Department, something like that. The state has a very important role to play in this, and we'll see why later on when we deal with fixed capital and, and, and the like. But one of the interesting things here is I mentioned about the coercive laws of competition. In the world of transport, it's frequently the case that you don't have pure competition. You've always got what's called monopolistic competition. I mean, one railroad from New York City to Washington, um, it would be crazy to bring, you know, build eight railroads between you know, New York and Washington and then have them compete. So the result is that in many of these areas you get a form of monopolistic competition uh, which inevitably leads to state regulation and state involvement, if not state provision. So there are areas of this sort that in history, so the transport is an industry which is both competitive and, and of course since we've had the privatization of uh, the transport uh, sector in, in many areas of Europe, for example, you can see what happens. I mean, the British system has been privatized <coughs> compared to the French system that's not and say, which one would you rather travel on? And pretty soon, have a, what's, what's more advantageous? So it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a complicated kind of question. And the history is very complicated because, again, the interstate highway system in this country was built not overtly uh, because they wanted to encourage the auto industry and all the rest of it. It was, it was built as a national security kind of question. So you can get things done in the name of national security that you wanted to do otherwise. So very suspicious about that. So we should uh, probably stop around here, so thanks very much. And next week we will do um, the next few ch chapters. Um, the key one is chapter 8, fixed capital and circulating capital. So spend as much time as you can on that. There are then two chapters. Uh, um, the overall chapter 9 is, is, is short, but has some important ideas. But then there are chapters 10 and 11, which are reviews of what Adam Smith thought about things and then of what uh, Ricardo thought about things. Go over chapters, uh, the, those chapters 10 and 11. You can go over them pretty lightly. I mean, I, I, I don't, don't get too sort of bogged down in, you know, Marx sort of repeating what Adam Smith said and then what he thinks about it. It is all note form, so don't get bogged down in that, but pay close attention because fixed capital is a very, very important category in Marx. We've already come across it several times in the text. Fixed capital does something, though. Well, we've got a problem with fixed capital. It's on his mind, and we've got to get it in the open and establish what's meant by it.